Despite what it says on this week's email, this is TechBiter Worldwide for the week of April 13th, not the 11th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. I spend a fair amount of time grumbling about things I don't like, things that don't work or maybe don't work the way I think they should work. But there's more to me than just the grumbler. Sometimes I encounter some real winners, and I've been tossing some of those into a file. This week I thought I'd share some of them with you. The first one is just simply the ability of a software company to call a bug a bug. Several years ago, probably back in the late 80s, maybe early 90s, Bill Gates commented that Microsoft software didn't have bugs. New versions of the operating system and applications included enhancements and improvements, but they weren't bug fixes. Well, that, of course, was ludicrous. All software has bugs. Bill Gates knows that. But I think of that frequently when I encounter programs such as the BAT. That's my email program. And every time they have a new version, the developers provide a list of what has changed. And they are very careful to differentiate between enhancements, new features, and bug fixes. In fact, they even allow common users like me to report bugs. There's a link right in the program that takes you to their website. For example, I noticed a bug in the latest version of the program that causes the delete function to fail. In fact, I found out later it actually causes several other keys to simply stop working. And the problem not only caused the keys to stop functioning properly, but delete and certain other functions weren't available even from the menu. The only way to fix it is to stop the program and restart it. To report a bug, I needed to provide the serial number of the program, and I also had to provide my email address. This makes it easy for the software engineers to ask any questions, should they have some. So I filled out the bug summary, included a screen capture to illustrate the problem. So I wrote up the bug report this way. Normally, pressing delete will delete the current message, but sometimes that doesn't work. When the delete key doesn't work, delete in the main menu, message delete, is also unavailable, as is delete in the context menu. The only way to restore the functionality is to close the bat and reopen it. Well, within a few hours a note had been posted to the bug. Turns out they already knew about it. Well, that's not a big surprise. It'll be fixed in the next version. And they did call it a bug. Another thing I like, and I have mentioned from time to time, is having a warranty that is worth more than the paper it's not printed on. You probably know that my primary computer is from TCR Systems in Pickerington. Several months ago, the year-old system suffered some unexplained and unexpected problems. TCR replaced the memory, and they replaced a hard drive, and finally, they replaced everything but the box the computer is in, and I do mean everything, even the power supply. They also carefully moved all of the data from the old hardware to the new. My cost for all of that? Zero. That's because TCR offers a three-year warranty on many of its systems. And it's encouraging when I receive a message such as this one, because it clearly illustrates that TCR treats all of its customers this way. Here's the message. I sent another friend who needed a laptop to TCR, and they were delighted with their new computer and the service. 
My friend asked Warren about mailing in a warranty card, and he said, if you have any problems, you just bring it right here to me. TCR built a desktop for my sister last year. She's been happy with it. She was impressed with a company that actually listens to what the customers need instead of trying to push old inventory like the big box stores. They also helped her out by installing AVG's free version and some good free anti-spyware programs, which is a big help to people who would otherwise spend a lot of money for branded programs with a lot of unnecessary features that were functionally no better than the excellent available freeware. It's very encouraging to receive letters like that. A few months ago, I had some relatively minor foot surgery, but it did require me to sit with my foot propped up for a week or so. This is not a position that is conducive to sitting at a computer desk. Try it sometime. Although I do have laptop computers, one that runs Windows and Linux, and one that runs the Mac OS X, using them can be a bit painful because of the heat they emit from the bottom. Put a laptop on your lap for half an hour or so, and you'll end up with a very hot lap. The Mac, particularly, its aluminum case radiates enough heat to actually produce a nasty burn. Well, fortunately, I had a LapWorks laptop desk that made working solely with the laptop computers for a couple of weeks much more manageable than it would have been otherwise. The desk is a hinged plastic device, folds down to about 11 by 11 inches, which is small enough to fit in most computer cases, opens up to be about 21 by 11. That's large enough for all but the largest laptop computer and a mouse. So it provides stability, space for the mouse, and protection for me from the heat. That's not bad for a $30 device. Since then, LapWorks has updated the laptop desk to what they're calling the Futura model. The size remains about the same, but some of the corners are a bit more rounded, and air channels that used to be closed are now open, so there's better airflow through and around the device. If you take your laptop into the office, the Laptop Desk Futura model can be set up in a way that makes it easier to use the laptop on a desk. But you might also want to look at the company's desk stands. Those range in price from about $25 to right around $100. If I wore a hat, those are the folks I would be tipping it to this week. Ever wonder what's in a file? Matthew Stevens, a friend in Australia, reported that a colleague had set Word 2007 to save files by default in the old Word 2003 doc format. She then zips the doc file and emails them to Matthew. Matthew uses a Mac. When he unzips the file, he receives several additional pieces that appear to be part of Word 2007 file format. I thought he needed a tinfoil hat but it turned out that those extra pieces really are there, and they are visible only if you use an unzip program that doesn't know about the docx files, which are actually zipped files, and you have to do it on a Mac. So maybe it's me who needs the tinfoil hat. Well, at the beginning, I blustered back. I'm not sure that I understand the process being described here. If you're saying that the doc file contains what's in the docx file, which is what I originally thought, that simply cannot be the case because earlier versions of Word wouldn't know what to do with the file. On the other hand, if you're saying that the process of zipping the file somehow adds the additional stuff that would have been in the docx file to the zip, that is, outside the doc file but included in the zip file, I can't see how that would happen, but at least it would allow the doc file, once unzipped, to be opened by earlier versions of Word. 
Well, I sent Matthew and Dick Margulis, another friend who owns PCs, two zipped files. One zip was the zipped docx file, and two zip was a zipped doc file. I included the docx file, but changed the extension from docx to zip. I'll explain why I did that in just a minute. And I asked them both to examine the files. I opened the Word 2007 file in UltraEdit, a text editor. And what I noticed was right at the top of the file, the letters PK. That's a marker. Indicates it's a zip archive. Stands for PK zip. That's because Word 2007 files are actually zip files that include other files. Tricky. So then I took a look at the Word 2003 file. No PK marker. No zipping has been done. I scrolled down in the doc file, the Word 2003 file, and was able to begin reading plain text because that's the way Word 2003 actually stores text. It's readable in the file. It's not binary. Well, zip files are binary. So as I scrolled down in the docx file, the Word 2007 document, there was nothing readable. So then I tried to apply logic, and that's not always a good thing to do with software. I came up with five points. Number one, nothing happens on a computer by magic. All functions are created by programmers working with what must still be viewed as primitive tools. Number two, for a zip archive to contain more than the files specified by the user, a program will need to locate the files and store them. Item three. Extra files are useless, so my first question is why anyone would want to spend valuable programming resources developing a system that would do that. Point four, how does it know where the files are? Well, this goes back to point one. If you have a Word 2007 file and you save it as a Word 2003 file, you might have saved it in the same directory, but you might also have saved it to a network drive or to a thumb drive that you then take to another computer. So how does the zip archiver know where to find those extra files? What does it do when it can't find them because they're on a device that's no longer connected to the computer? And point five, uh, this would be a process that's guaranteed to fail in many cases, and it would therefore require a lot of additional analyst time to develop the use case and an inordinate amount of programmer time to code, test, and debug. Yet the additional files, as I noted in point three, would really not be needed. I then offered some additional conjecture. I know that Microsoft products, when they create HTML files, generate a main HTML document, then place all of the subsidiary files in a subdirectory. The operating system, by default, will treat these as a single entity, which is much the same way OS X on Macs treat an app file. It's really just a directory that contains files and possibly other directories. And at this point, I tried one more test. After copying the files to a thumb drive, I examined them on a Mac running OS X 10.5. And, by the way, you can see examples of these on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Then I double-clicked each of the files on the Mac to extract the contents. Number one zip produced a single file, the Word 2003 document. Number two zip produced also a single file, another zip file. So I had zipped a zip file. You may remember that the docx file is actually a zip file, and I had just renamed it to give it the zip extension. Several days later, I received a message from Matthew Stevens, the guy in Australia. He solved the problem. It was a lot simpler than I thought. He spoke to his colleague. It turns out that she opens the file that she receives in doc format. 
She works on it for a while, then saves it. She has Word 2007. Word 2007 keeps the file in Word 2003 format throughout. At no stage does she ever save it in Word 2007 format. She then zips the file using WinZip and sends him that file. Matthew unzips the file and gets a standalone Word 2003 document and a folder. That's the part that really had me confused, and Matthew provided an explanation. When Matthew used Stuff It, a version of Stuff It written prior to the release of Microsoft Word 2007 file format, he got the extra files. When he used OS X's built-in file expander, he didn't. Ah, a clue. What I found on examining very closely, two copies of a file, one that had been edited in Word 2007, one that hadn't, was that the one edited in Word 2007 had additional information in the file. So Matthew was correct. I obviously, in this case, was wrong, even though I tried applying logic. At that point, I still couldn't really see any logical reason why Microsoft decided to implement it this way, except possibly to retain information that's going to be needed to restore missing functionality should the document be opened again in Word 2007. In fact, it would seem that back when Office 2003 was developed, somebody at Microsoft had the foresight to create markers that tell Word 2003 to ignore entire sections of the file, and then to use these sections of the file to retain information needed by future versions of the program. All it took was a Mac to blow their cover. In Nerdly News, what happens if you steal a police car? Now, what the heck does that have to do with technology? Well, depending on what jurisdiction you're in, what radio system the police car has, and how the radio systems are wired into the cruisers, maybe something or maybe nothing. You could hop into a cruiser, hit the lights and siren, and go for a little ride. Uh, This wouldn't be a good idea. I don't recommend it, but you could do it. In another jurisdiction, you might hop into the cruiser, hit the lights and siren, and find that your little ride stops after just a few seconds because headquarters sent a kill message through the radio to the cruiser's ignition. Theoretically, you could set the system up to lock the doors, too, but that probably introduces enough liability that no city attorney would ever approve it. Well, my point is that cruisers are sometimes stolen. So are notebook computers, including those owned by the FBI, ATF, military, and probably even the CIA. Well, Intel, not the Intel division of the government, Intel, the company that makes processors, is working on a way to make notebook computers safer, harder to steal. Every year, about two million laptops are stolen. That's what the FBI says. Around 15% of all companies have reported at least one stolen notebook computer within the past year. So Intel is working on anti-theft technology. The abbreviation here is ATT. Not AT&T, but just ATT. They say this will prevent notebook computers from being stolen and also protect the data that's on the computer if it is stolen. ATT will start showing up on Intel-based systems later this year, It's part of the company's active management technology. An Intel scientist says that the new technology will make it possible to turn the PC off under certain conditions remotely. The system will also make it possible for the computer to report its location if it's connected to the Internet, either physically or by Wi-Fi. And all data on the disk can be encrypted. 
This protects the data even if a thief removes the hard drive and puts it in another machine. ATT is going to be turned off by default, and you might wonder why. Well, Intel doesn't want a repeat of what happened when it included a unique identifier in the original Pentium 3 CPUs. Remember all the brouhaha over that? Security and privacy are always at odds with each other. In that case, privacy won, and the unique identifiers were disabled. I still haven't made it all the way through the Ubuntu 7.10 manual. It's a very big book. It's Gusty Gibbon, Ubuntu Linux. Uh, So I'm still working on the version 7 book, and within the next week or so, version 8 of Ubuntu is going to be released. It's going to be called Hardy Heron. If you're fed up with Windows but you still don't want a Mac, maybe the free operating system, Linux, is for you. My usual warning still applies. If there are Windows applications that you must have, then you probably need a Windows machine. And if there are Mac applications that you must have, you probably need a Mac. There are ways to run multiple operating systems on a single machine, but it's still a bit challenging. Still, many people might find that Hardy Heron, when it's released, will be just what they need. The folks who create Ubuntu continue to improve the feature set and functionality. There are far too many new and improved features to talk about, but just briefly, Xorg 7.3 will make Ubuntu better able to use more monitors and multiple monitors along with other hardware devices. Hardware support for Linux has always been kind of a shaky thing. If you're staying away from Linux because you need to run presentations on an external monitor and you found that daunting under Linux, you might find that Ubuntu 8 with Xorg 7.3 will do what you need. GNOME has also been updated, makes it possible to escalate user privileges on an ad hoc basis. Testers are also saying that some operations are also reported to be quite a bit faster. There's better audio support in Ubuntu version 8. And Firefox 3, it's currently in beta, will be provided with the new version. Firefox, of course, isn't part of Ubuntu, but it's closely associated with Ubuntu because they are both open source projects. Big improvement in the ability to burn CDs and DVDs on Ubuntu. And some firewall improvements. The Uncomplicated Firewall, a new host-based firewall application that can be configured from the command line. The goal here was to create a firewall that end-users could manage without too much difficulty, and yet wouldn't dumb down the firewall to the point that administrators would fail to have the tools they need. So keep an eye out for it. Ubuntu. One nice thing about the way Ubuntu works, you can download it from the Internet and you can put it on a CD, a bootable CD, that will then allow you to boot your computer to a version of Ubuntu. You can try it out, see if you like it. It makes no changes to your PC until you actually install it. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of April 13th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Don't forget, check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.